I was a 54-year-old Welsh woman, five foot tall, that was knocking on doors saying I could take on the big banks. There are many, many women who are not being promoted, who are not being funded, whilst average men are being promoted and being funded. Right now, crypto is lacking sufficient practical and moral purpose. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Sourcing tech talent and delivering your software roadmap shouldn't be difficult. That's why DZ connects high-growth companies with some of the best pre-vetted developers from across the world. Whether supporting your in-house team, building your dream dev squad, or delivering a project end-to-end, DZ's unique model is trusted by businesses globally to help them rapidly execute software development. DZ is offering all UKTN listeners a 10% discount on their first engagement. Go to dz.com UKTN to access quality development teams today. Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly conversation with founders of some of the UK's high growth tech companies. Each episode, we will talk through the founders' personal journey, their vision for their business and their views of the wider tech industry. I'm Jane Wakefield and joining me today is Anne Bowden, the founder and CEO of Digital Bank Starling. Thanks for joining me, Anne. Hi, Jane. First of all, let me just ask a little bit about you and how you came to be in this current role at Starling Bank. Well, I'm a computer science graduate from the early 80s that spent her whole career in corporate jobs, in technology, in the big banks. I've worked for banks all over the world in a 35-year career in traditional technology banking. And in 2014, I quit my job to start a new bank. And then I became an entrepreneur. So it was quite a long history of lots of banks doing huge projects, running budgets of billions in lots of banks across the world. And then I realised things could be done better and I was going to start my own bank. And what were some of the things that you were finding frustrating in the way that traditional banks were doing things that you wanted to change? I think that when I started in technology in the early 80s, the technologists and the business were very close together, working together to solve real problems. And over a 30-year career in Lloyds Bank, Standard Chartered Bank, PwC, UBS in Zurich, Adrian Amro in Amsterdam, I came to the conclusion that the separation between the people who actually made things happen and the people who thought they knew what the so-called business customers wanted had grown apart. And more and more time was being spent in bureaucracy, in planning, in controlling, in minimising risk, but not enough was being spent in really driving the, the business forward. And I felt that despite the fact there were lots of departments talking about innovation, hardly any innovation was actually being done. And I toured the world, talking to banks all over the world, talking about what they were doing. And I talked to the the CEO and he's telling me about the fact that he's refurbishing all these banking branches. And I talked to the CFO and they talk about the cost of everything. And then I actually went out there and experienced it. And 
The only thing different from bank to bank was the colour of the carpet in the branches. There was nothing really fundamentally different. So I started thinking about and dreaming about what would it be like, you know, if you had a new bank that had they did things in a new, different way. I also started thinking about what I wanted to do next. And at the time, I was Chief Operating Officer at Island Irish Banks in Dublin. And I'd gone in there to return the bank to profitability. And then I came to the conclusion um, in December 2013 that we needed a new bank. And I was going to be the founder of that bank. And now we've, we've got quite a lot of these banks that are digital only. How have you found that transition into that kind of a way of doing things? And how do you find the fact that you've now got plenty of competition? Well, there isn't a lot of competition. I think there are a lot of new players trying to innovate and create value for customers. There are very few, but I think there's two, new digital banks with a banking licence providing digital services, digital current accounts to customers. So we're now many years into our development. We've now got three and a half million customers. Half of those, half a million of those customers are business customers. And we rank the number one customer service bank by the Competition and Markets Authority. So yes, it's been, you know, it's been nine years for me, but we've managed to to deliver what we set out to do. When I started this, I I took a long time to raise money. It was a very, very difficult process. I started knocking on doors and saying, you know, this is the idea. I'm going to start a new bank with a new customer proposition. It's going to have current accounts that are going to be free to consumers and businesses. It's going to give wonderful service and it's going to be profitable and we're going to be bigger than the big banks. And guess what? Nobody believed me. It's a bit of an audacious plan, but it, that is what we're doing. Our customers are, are joining us and because of the service and because we are there 24 by 7 for customers. And what would you say are sort of some of the key things that you learned about running a business when you went out looking for that funding? I think that the... The venture capital world is is still dominated by a certain sector of society. I was a 54-year-old Welsh woman, five foot tall, that was knocking on doors saying I could take on the big banks and I was going to do it using technology. And venture capitalists didn't believe me. Venture capitalists really look for patterns. Venture capital investment is all about looking for businesses look like previous businesses with founders that look familiar, you know, and I wasn't a 30-year-old, you know, in a sort of white guy with a beard. And I had spent my career in, in corporate life and therefore I was a very unusual founder. And I suppose my my aspirations, my vision was to take on big financial institutions and nobody thought that was possible. Obviously, you prove them wrong. Are you now seeing that traditional banks are becoming more aware of the threat of banks like Starling and changing the way they are doing things, or are they still sticking with the with the traditional methods? I think it's very difficult for them to change their methods. Um, I think they're taking um, new ways of doing things very seriously. It's not just Starling; it's the it's the tech companies around the world that are challenging the way technology is delivered. And the big banks around the world are sitting up and taking notice and trying to figure out how they can 
catch up. Yes, they copy all our features and that's great. Every time I drive down a motorway or a main road and see a billboard at the side of the road, being an advert from one of the big banks, advertising a feature we launched five years ago. You know, that gives me a bit of a buzz, you know, as well as changing the experience for our customers, we change in the experience for all customers and they are taking it really seriously. One of the things we launched about six months ago is Engine by Starling. One of the things by Starling is we built all our technology from scratch. We didn't go out and buy software packages. Starling technology, everything that actually runs the bank has been built by Starling engineers. We are now offering that technology platform as a SaaS service to other banks around the world. So a couple of months ago, I was in Australia, meeting banks out in Australia. I've been to the States. Starling's product now is also to provide technology to other banks around the world. Before we talk about that, and we will come back to Engine a bit later, you've mentioned that you were a science graduate in the 80s, which I guess was fairly unusual. And you've mentioned that you didn't necessarily fit with the model of uh, of what people were expecting from entrepreneurs. So how have you found being a woman in what is a very male-dominated world of, of tech and, and fintech, I, I should imagine even more so? I'm used to being the odd one out. I was the odd one out doing chemistry and computer science at university. I was the odd one out starting a technology career in the city. I was an odd one out as a as a woman in finance. So when I became an entrepreneur, that was, yeah, that was pretty unusual as well. So being the only one around the table is something I'm used to. And I think it teaches you perseverance. I think it teaches you resilience. Throughout my career, I've had to push for, you know, every promotion and every job. It was good training for raising money. Do you think that that's changing now? Are you seeing more women coming through? What would your advice be to young women that are thinking of getting into into the tech world? I don't think it's getting, you know, in the tech world, I don't think it's getting any better. You know, when I started 30 odd years ago, it was difficult and it's still difficult. I don't think we've made the the strides, the improvements I thought we would make when I started my career. Just because things are difficult doesn't mean we should give up. I believe that the more we do, the more we talk about it, the more we encourage, the more we have role models, the better it gets. But it's still difficult. And there are many, many women who are not being promoted, who are not being funded, whilst average men are being promoted and being funded. Yes, and that's a discussion I think that we'll continue having for a very long time. A quick message from our sponsor. Access to high quality and cost-effective talent is one of the biggest growth obstacles facing companies. DZ exists to solve this problem. In a challenging market, businesses need to focus on reducing overheads, all while pushing for meaningful growth. DZ's one-to-many model provides access to an ecosystem of hand-picked development teams, engaged on a flexible basis and at competitive rates. Visit dz.com slash UKTN for an exclusive 10% discount for all podcast listeners. Let's talk a little bit more now about Starling. And I guess the glaringly obvious first question is about the backdrop to banking at the moment, which is the economic downturn that we're facing. 
And Starling has said it wants to be a bank for small to medium-sized businesses. Lots of those small businesses face incredibly tough times, having had many years of tough times because of the pandemic. How are you seeing the situation play out with your business customers and, and what can you do to help? Yeah, it's been tough. You've got lots of businesses that have had a horrific pandemic and as soon as they get on their feet, there's something else that hits them. You know, the energy crisis is really, really hitting the small businesses at the moment. But there are things that, that can be that can be done. One of the things that I'm really keen on talking about is the Small Business Commissioner has said late payments of invoices from suppliers is a significant problem. And I really, really agree with this. The FSB has said that large firms are said to be squeezing their small business suppliers for free credit. And this is something that there's lots of things we can't fix, but surely we can fix this one. And I think we need to support the Federation of Small Business in calling for Bayes to restart his name and shame policy. Isn't it awful that the weakest companies have to wait, you know, the, the longest to get their bills paid? And we must do something about this. So doing something about late payments you know, against a backdrop of the cost of doing business um, with energy and business rates rising, it's hard. But I'm always inspired by these, you know, um, many customers. We have half a million small businesses who seem to be so, so prepared to innovate, pivot, flex, to survive. And that is what entrepreneurship is all about. You know, one of the things I'm particularly interested in is in high growth, scalable businesses. And I'm chairing a government task force looking at high growth women-led enterprises. And we were formed um, about six months ago to see what we could do to actually get more women founders leading those high growth businesses. We've got lots of women now sort of looking at more general businesses, but what's going to make the huge difference to our economy? You know, the success of business in the UK is if we can have more of those high growth businesses, whether in biofilm or tech or in fintech or in, in STEM areas. If we can actually put as much resources and we can into, into those businesses, those are the businesses that are going to create GDP and create jobs. And that's one of the initiatives I'm working on at present to see if we can encourage those businesses to thrive. And by encourage them to thrive, what do you mean? Are you talking about changes to government policy with sort of tax breaks, etc.? Or is it just sort of setting up an ecosystem? where they feel that they can lay out their plans and have others to talk to? What, what does it look like in practice? Yeah, um, it's probably too early to actually sort of publish our findings. Um, but it, 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 it's, it's, qu it's quite wide ranging. And we've got a fantastic board. And they're all coming to it from different angles. You know, whether what we need to do to encourage VCs to invest in more women, to see what we can do from the intact environment, to see what we can do to actually put people together and networks together in the regions. We don't have all the answers. Um, we're getting stuck in the moment doing the data analysis and figuring out what we can do to make all this much more tangible. Now, obviously, you have big ambitions for 2023. Can you tell me anything at all about IPO plans or timelines? <laughs> journalists are always asking us about IPOs and, and, and timelines. We don't have to raise any further 
funding for the business. The, the business is is profitable and highly profitable and growing very well. So we can do these things on our timetable rather than anybody else. Um, but we are, you know, we're growing very fast. We currently have two and a half thousand people and we are now hiring another thousand people in Manchester. And that's one of the things I'm most proud of at Starling is that we bring in great jobs and interesting jobs and well-paid jobs to all parts of the country. We started in London. Our first office outside London was in Southampton. The second in Cardiff, and I'm really proud of bringing jobs to South Wales. As you probably gather, I'm from Swansea. And now Manchester. So, you know, fintech is not about just about Silicon Roundabout and, and London and Shoreditch. Uh, fintech and the jobs we bring are up and down the country. And what would you say to other businesses that are, are considering kind of doing a similar thing? It's presumably very successful to have people working in lots of different regions. Is it, are there specific things that you can say that it's sort of improved from being a London-centric business? I think that in today's world, this is an employee-driven market. And Starling has to make itself attractive to all sorts of people in all sorts of parts of, of the UK. And I think this is, this is the post-pandemic realisation that... An employer must think about what it needs to do to be a great employer. And we want to be, we want to access people in all sorts of places that have all sorts of skills. And that is why we have this very distributive office model. You know, having an office in Manchester means that we can access a huge population of great talent that we wouldn't be able to uh, access if we were only in Wales and the south of England. So that's very, very important to us. Now, you mentioned earlier Engine. And one of the interesting things about Engine is that it's propelling Starling towards being more of a tech firm than a banking platform. Maybe you always considered yourself as a tech firm. But there is that blurring of lines, isn't there, that we've seen with other industries. I'm thinking, for example, of Uber, which very much wanted to call themselves a tech firm, but others insisted, no, you, you're a taxi firm and that makes a big difference to how you how you do business and how you are regulated. What's your thoughts about that, about companies that have come from one traditional industry morphing into being more of a tech firm and what do we need to do to make sure that we don't have the problems we encountered with Uber? Fascinating question. If I put this in context with, with my own career... You know, I was a computer scientist that started in Lloyds Bank in the yeah. early 80s. And, you know, fascinated by technology, that's what I did. I was really kept in the back room. You know, technology was something which was not what, you know, the, the CEO did. It wasn't what the leaders of the organisation did. Technology was a supporting function. And... For many, many years, that's how the big banks looked at technology. It was supporting. It was not leading. And in that career, I you know, went in and out to technology departments. But what differentiated me was that I loved technology. I loved leading the charge on innovation. And that is how I got to senior positions in the banking industry. And I've always found this surprising because that's what banks do. 
they own, they don't make a product. They don't manufacture, um, you know, a car or you know they they don't transport somebody on a, on an aeroplane. What banks do is 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 manage numbers, digital. It is a fundamental digital industry. And therefore, it is only in the last 10, 15 years that technology has become more and more important in banks. And this is why I started Starling. I started Starling because I felt that technology should be leading organisations. It should be far more a higher profile in the whole proposition because that's what customers want. Customers want to have the very, very best technology to support them in their daily lives with the with the the person answering the phone as the backer not the other way around so when i started starling it was very important that we build our own technology and looking back in 2014 2015 i think i was ridiculed in the financial times because i had this well dream of building new technology you know, wasn't building a bank good enough? Why was I also building the technology? But that was very important. And I think that's the advantage we now have. And I think that's the advantage we now go into market with, with Engine. Now, one of the other things that's become increasingly associated with the fintech world and the sort of more technological end of the financial markets is cryptocurrencies. I know you have some very strong Feelings on that. Obviously, we've seen the FTX collapse at the end of last year. This week, it was just announced that South Korea plans to start tracking crypto transactions to crack down on money laundering. And of course, there's just huge volatility in the market. So what do you think about where we are right now with crypto? Well, I have been criticised quite a lot for starting stance on crypto. Now, one day, crypto will be safe and highly regulated on an international basis with protection for consumers and businesses. But from where we stand at the moment, that's a dream. One day I can see the potential, but it's not where we are today. Right now, crypto is lacking sufficient practical and moral purpose. And I must call for regulators to ensure that crypto exchanges are regulated to the same standards as other financial institutions. And if they're not regulated, then they cannot continue to trade. I sometimes are quite baffled by, you know, some of these talks on social media platforms about arguments about the fact that no, 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 crypto cannot be regulated because that's the only way that's going to have the the freedom to grow. And on the other hand, in the same threads, you know, people wanting protection because they have lost their money. Um, through scams and through these various platforms. So, yes, we have seen you know, trading volumes tumble and we have seen people you know, losing, losing money. But I don't think this story has come to an end yet. I think that we'll have several years of really regulators trying to regulate more. I think we'll see some more failures. I then think we'll see a second wave of crypto exchanges and schemes of some sort that will be far more friendly to the planet and will be highly regulated. And it's not until we see that second wave that we will see a set of technologies and principles and processes that will last a decade. We're seeing, though, more and more young people dabbling in crypto, seeing as it 
as a way of making a quick buck. Does that worry you? Yes, because as somebody in financial regulation, you know, I spend my whole career trying to protect people from, um, you know, the bad guys. And at the moment, there's no effective way of protecting customers in this world. And going hand in hand with crypto is this new phenomenon of NFTs. I'm guessing, Anne, that you're not going to be buying any Bored Ape NFTs anytime soon. Well, I must admit, I'm, I'm, I'm normally gifted some for Christmas. And therefore, the only thing about being gifted an NFT is you can't re-gift them that easily because there's an audit trail of where they've come from. But yeah, I think it's an interesting area. I think we ought to play with it, not take it too seriously, You know, not spend too much money on it. This world is a long way to go and we're far from understanding it yet. Thank you so much, Anne. That's been a really fascinating discussion. But sadly, that's all we have time for on this week's edition of the UKDN podcast. Thank you for joining me from wherever you are. To keep up to date with the latest UK tech developments, head over to www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN on LinkedIn and Twitter. And do get in touch with me via LinkedIn or Twitter at Jane Wakefield with your comments and suggestions about the show. Until next time, goodbye from me and thank you from Anne. A quick message from our sponsor. Access to high quality and cost-effective talent is one of the biggest growth obstacles facing companies. Deezy exists to solve this problem. In a challenging market, businesses need to focus on reducing overheads, all while pushing for meaningful growth. Deezy's one-to-many model provides access to an ecosystem of hand-picked development teams, engaged on a flexible basis and at competitive rates. Visit deezy.com slash UKTN for an exclusive 10% discount for all podcast listeners.